lesson comes to us this morning from the Good News According to St. Luke, the 15th chapter. This is Jesus speaking. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother's come, and your father's killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me and my friends, so much as a young goat that I might celebrate. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the gospel of our Lord. One of my controlling metaphors these last few years for what I think human life ought to be, what the life of faith ought to look like, is to understand ourselves as seekers rather than as settlers. You know, there's lots of good things about settling. Uh, we could talk about those. But as a controlling metaphor for faith, settling looks something like I'm trying to find my little piece, my little patch, and I'm going to settle there. And then I'm gonna, the first thing I'm going to do is put up a barbed wire fence, make sure that good fences make good neighbors, and I'm going to protect this thing. And if you ever threaten it, you're in trouble. I'm going to defend it with all my might. Now, this can be a piece of land. It could be an ideology. It could be an identity. It could be all sorts of things. Whereas seeking is more about movement, questing for something yet unknown, yet not yet fully experienced. 
And as you go on a journey, if you've ever been on one, you know, especially if it's a dangerous place, that you find teammates wherever you can, help, food, directions. If someone wants to walk with you and help carry your burden, you begin to team up and you open up to new things. I think this is why Hebrews, the book of Hebrews talks about all the great faith, all those great figures from the Old Testament all the way up into the new in the early church. And it said all of these were seeking something. They were seeking a final homeland, one that you can't find just here, seeking a true and lasting home. Some of you remember Greg Thompson, who is a friend of ours and spoke many years ago at one of our retreats in a talk called The Hospitality of God. He said this. He's talking about the tendency, especially in America, for Christians to try to find holy huddles and to settle and have settled. This is exactly, I know everything there is to know. I'm going to defend it and I'm going to defend my identity and I'm going to try to make other people respect it. And all those people are out there to get us. We just have to make sure they're going to, they're going to take over and come into our land and ruin our thoughts and our ways of life. And he says, but the problem is the chief characteristic of a secular age is not that it is, has militant coherence. In other words, that they are out there trying to ruin and destroy the Christian faith. He says, no, secularism is not about militant coherence. The true characteristic of secularism is homelessness. Homelessness. I think this is a profound statement and largely correct. That all of us, deep down somewhere, share a sense of being homeless, of being not at home. This can be literal or physical for some people. They lack permanent shelter. It could be ancestral or bloodlines or tribal, but then there are people like me, more and more in mobility and modern economy and global travel. It's hard to feel like where you were born, the accident of where you actually showed up in a hospital, has anything to do with who you are or ought to be, or even that it can cohere into a permanent place of belonging, which leads to the communal, who are my people? Who have my back? Who am I in this together with? Of course, also just relational. The home itself as a physical place was often a place for extended family and community. But here we've turned it in the modern world into a micro unit focused on two parents and their kids only. The James Howard Kunstler, a sociologist, said this in his book, Home From Nowhere. He says, if anything, there appears to be an inverse relationship between a growing obsession with the home as a totem object and the disintegration of families that has become the chief social phenomenon of our time. We worship this idealized container for family life, and yet it turns out that the family cannot be sustained without the larger container of community life. We don't have deep, thick, real, extensive community anymore and this is because deep down there is also this spiritual longing to be connected, to know where we belong, to know that we're at home with God, I would suggest, and with others. And so often we feel disconnected, alone, restless, unrooted, wandering, overlooked, lost. See, we were meant to be at home in this world with God, one another, ourselves, and the created world, to be perfectly at home in your own skin. In life, moment by moment, but instead, for various reasons, we often feel lost and not at home at all. 
I read the long gospel, even though it's not our sermon text exactly this morning, but Jesus tells in the story about it, a story about a father and his two sons, and he's describing what homelessness looks like and what coming home might look like because he wanted everyone that hears this story to come home to God with and through him. He wants all people to be welcomed back into his life where we are at home. And he showed that you can be lost as a prodigal, profligate sinner, wasting all your gifts on your pleasures. And you can be just as lost when you've settled for what dad will give you and the estate that's coming someday and you're a dutiful, slavish servant. He wants us to keep seeking because he's seeking us to not settle, to be welcomed more and more deeply into his life. And this fall, if you've been here, you've heard that we're talking about what it means to have it be a church that's fruitful in a few virtues, the virtues of welcome and worship and witness. And I've suggested over and over again that we need to go beneath the surface and not just talk about what we can do, but what's underneath these things. How do we get connected to God's life and his vine so that we might abide in it and bear fruit? Let him work in us. And last week we considered, if you didn't hear, you can go back and listen to the sermon online, that God himself is a welcoming God. He is the God of welcome. Whatever we mean by welcome at its best, we mean God, Father, Son, and Spirit. This social community of oneness that opens up and invites others into, creates out of and then invites back into. But there's also a sociological significance to welcome. It's not just horizontal. It's not just God and me. It is the world. It is God and us. And we also have a hunger for this. David Brooks, in his book, summed up all the modern social science and the science of desire and motivation and habits. And the title of his book was that is called Social Animals. But that's what we are. We are social. We need one another. If you've ever read the book Blue Zones, it's kind of this diet lifestyle thing, and they've studied people around the world that live the longest, live into 100 years, and they live the healthiest. And they've studied a lot of things about it, but the one that surprises you isn't just that they eat really healthily and that they work and that they're in nature all the time, but the one that surprises you and jumps off the page is that a key ingredient to a long and happy and prosperous life and community is itself being in right relationship with others. A sense of whatever life takes us, I know who's around me and who's with me and we're in it together and I will provide for them when they need and they'll provide for me when I need. Literally, our deepest desire is for inclusion and acceptance and purpose and having support and security from others. It's one of our deepest needs. Without it, we sometimes literally get sick, we get lonely and anxious, and sometimes even die without it. See, the early church, as Acts chapter 6 I read to you, or Richard read to you actually earlier, the early church is where we can go and look at what was the early church doing? Here we are as this new congregation possibly inheriting this building, and there's all these new things to figure out. What should we do? And so it's helpful to look at the Gospels and to look at the book of Acts in the early church to point out that they were called the way. That's what their first name, before they were called Christians, they were just called the way, the way of life, the path, the journey, right? Seeking. It was a movement of people. It felt kind of spontaneous at times. Someone just tells someone, and they're like, that's amazing. And they run and tell someone else. The next thing you know, the gospel's in Ethiopia, just you know, in the pages of the book of Acts. It's spontaneous, but then immediately became organized. 
and committed into local new communities, not unlike ours. There were miracles and healings and conversions. They called these new gatherings the ecclesia, which is, in ordinary terms, anytime there was a, a group of people gathering together for some official purpose in assembly. That's just the word for what happened, you know? So they applied it to the church. And it's important for our purposes that they did this. They gathered as the ecclesia, the church, self-consciously and intentionally across every single human barrier. The world had never seen anything like what God was doing in the early church. Rich and poor came together, those who had sold what they had to provide for those who had not. So no one had too much and no one had too little. The healthy and the sick came together. The Christians, in fact, were well known for being those who healed, and when there wasn't immediate miraculous physical healing, they touched and cared. Eventually, centuries later, founded the first hospitals. Old and young coming together, no one had much use for the really old people, but you certainly didn't have any use for children. We love children here in this church and even in the modern West. We love it. it's a, That's a great thing, but in the history of the world, children were there to help out, and that's about it, right? That's why Jesus has to go around saying, no, 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 welcome the children. They get to come too. In fact, you need to become like them. People are like, what? We don't have time for those kids. Male and female. Jesus himself known for radically including women in his ministry and in his discipleship and in his presence. And then the big one that's all over the entire New Testament, Jews and the nations, Jew and Greek and everybody else who wasn't Jewish. Breaking down this barrier was what the gospel was doing. Going through, tearing down every barrier that divided humanity from one another. Indeed, they called their ministry, the ministry of reconciliation, reconciling people to God and to one another, which means to bring back together again. They began calling former strangers brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers as they ate a new dinner together that they called the body and blood, and this is why many pagan observers and writers called the first Christians incestuous cannibals. I don't know, they say they're eating <laughs> blood and body and they call each other brother and sister, they're so weird. But see, this new family was coming home together, week by week, meeting by meeting, coming home together to God again and again, and to one another again and again, across every single human barrier, and that is what transformed the ancient world. If you look at the book of Acts, while we do see healing and miracles, it, doesn't, it seems as if the apostles' ambition and strategy and their main focus for making these new ecclesias everywhere, for spreading the good news, was not first and foremost on making some sort of, uh, you know, they didn't have electoral politics, but making some sort of social impact first and foremost. They didn't go around picketing indentured servitude or throwing stones at the temple prostitutes. No, the church, through its alternate practice, would eventually undermine those things. Society would be transformed by Christianity. But it seems as if the apostles and the first disciples were on a way, and they had a prior and more focused purpose, ambition, and goal, and it seems it wasn't what they were 
wanted to be known for in the world, but that their goal was to continually be known by God, be known by one another. Their main goal, it seems, was to introduce and to welcome all people to the God of love and to his community of love in the church. That their work was to make strangers to God into children of God. To make strangers to one another, or even enemies, into brothers and sisters. It's important to remember that the primary thing the Holy Spirit does for us is not first and foremost all of our activities, although these are good, evangelism, discipleship, starting churches, saving the lost. These are all things that the Holy Spirit does, and we hope he continues to do through us. But the chief thing that Jesus talks about when he says, I'll send you the Spirit, is that the Spirit is going to unite you to my life and love, Jesus says. That no matter how far you wander in your thoughts for 30 seconds, or how much you wander from my love for a week that you don't think about or renew in any way, whether you're sitting here angry outside the house that other people are getting into the party, or whether you've run away and wasted your inheritance, the Holy Spirit is always here waiting, watching, knocking with an embrace like the Father to give you a continual welcome back to the God who is welcome. They believed this, that the Spirit was doing this, connecting them to God again and again, yes, sometimes in dramatic first encounters, and then often in repeated seeking on our part, seeking God seeking us, we seek him back, we return home. The Father says to the Son, you've had everything, just come on into the party. You've always had it. This is what changed the world internally, relationally, communally, and in society. This is what was changed in the world. And it's interesting for us because, again, we won't repeat this for years on end, but at least for a while now, we've just merged three congregations. We also have new visitors and people plugging into our community. As you know how hard community is, people move all of the time. New people show up and they're all excited. You're jaded, <laughs> speaking for myself. Um, you may feel I have no bandwidth or margin. Actually, when I actually get to know some of these people, if I'm honest, I got more in common with my bowling club, you know, or the people I go out sailing with, or the people I like to drink beer with. Some of these people, whew, they're weird, annoying, demanding, they offend me, and that's why, just to spend a few minutes in application here, welcome is not a one-time thing. If we are going to be like the God of welcome, a welcoming church, it is not even just a one-time thing. It is not even just the important surface things of welcoming at the door, providing a script so you can participate even though you've never been here before, opening our doors to the building so that people walking by feel like they can come in. It is all of those things, but it is also something deeper than just a friendly conversation. It is the hard work of reconciliation, of maintaining connection to one another, of even when you're tired or worn out or hurt, that we're always opening up to one another, working through the things that continue to try to divide us. 
We see it in this passage in Acts chapter six. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. A complaint by the Hellenists in the church arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of alms and food. Already in the church, issues. It's not some rosy picture. This passage about the early church seems bland. There's no super manifestation of the Holy Spirit, no angel coming down to mix things up, no outside opposition, no death threats, no one's beaten, no healings, no impassioned street sermon. But what is actually happening here is the church in its very early form addresses some tensions as they grow together as a family. And this too is the miraculous, powerful, life-giving work of God. He is telling us, this is not just sort of a picture of the sad trombone playing with the family tensions in the church, but rather showing us that it is in the church with the God of welcome at work in his welcoming community that there will be tension. There will be tensions around issues of race and language and ethnicity and class and sexuality and money and way of life and all sorts of different things. But the church is one place that is equipped to wrestle with these issues with honesty, hope, and love because the tension is the inherent tension that comes when the church is expanding, when the church is seeking new people, when the church is seeking something more and not settling for what they have. That the Spirit is at work drawing new people into a new community, and that is the cause of the tension, and so we should expect it. We should expect to be offended or put out sometimes, talking to, getting to know, bearing with, loving one another. Because if it's true, and it is, that the God of welcome is reconciling all people to himself and to one another, then it means he's bringing back together, gathering together, ecclesia, humanity right where it's divided. And getting stitches isn't easy or pleasant. See, it says in those days, the disciples were increasing in number. They're growing. And that sounds like the acts we know. It sounds exciting. People from all backgrounds and walks of life, from the Roman world, coming to Jerusalem, witnessing what God's doing and joining into it. But it doesn't mean that the work is done. The work of welcome will always continue. Deep welcome rather than just surface welcome means that we have to do the hard work of welcoming one another, of not settling for things as they are, or small chat, small talk and chat, but to seek, to seek one another more deeply as we seek God. And there will be tensions from inviting and welcoming people of different cultures and ideas and races and classes into one family. But we should expect that precisely by seeing those wounds come back together, that the great healer, the great physician, is bringing us together that he might suture us back together. One again, Hellenists and Hebrews, this miraculous work here. They fix the injustice and they bring people back together. This is such a fascinating thing that they do here. Everyone wants unity. Everyone wants diversity and yet we can't find out how to get it. 
We know it's a pressing question in our city, our country, and our world. How can the many live together as one with all of these differences and divisions? This opportunity here, they came together and they did these amazing things. They put the Hellenists in charge of a new leadership and service position to take care of the tables. So the Hebrews evidently overlooking the Hellenists. They're kind of on the outside. We're going to make sure the best portion goes to our folk. The church leaders get together and they all pray and the Spirit helps them select Hellenists, the people experiencing injustice, to now be the ones serving everyone. How brilliant is the mind and work of God? And why could they do this? How could we do this? You can only do this if you are 100% secure in your position that you are always at home in God. That you yourself are deeply welcomed by God all the time. You're not insecure about it. You know that he's accepted you by grace, through faith, through all of your sin and mistakes, whatever the world said about you or excluded, you've never been excluded from the love of God in Christ. You never are. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. And if you are secure in that, then suddenly, what do you have to defend? What fence do you have to put up? Whatever happens, no one can take you from the eternal welcoming God and his love and his life. And so, you suddenly are free to be vulnerable. That's what a wound is. That's what a division is between people and communities. Think about it. Some of you may be visiting here this morning, but all of you think about someone who's visiting here for the first time. Who's vulnerable? Who has to do all the work? You leave your apartment in the cold and rain. You saw a little bit on Google. You're going to show up. You're not sure what they're going to be like. You're feeling a spiritual tug. You're not sure if they're going to exclude you or welcome you. You're not sure what's going to happen, what people are going to say, what they're going to be like. How about we, if we are welcomed in God, make ourselves vulnerable to one another, to others? If we are safe and secure, if he's healing us and we're in his hands, then we can show our wounds to one another. We can heal one another. So on an individual level, just think about this. Maybe in your relationships as you get to know one another in the appropriate time, in the right ways, you find ways to be more vulnerable and connected to one another. Maybe you say, you know what? I haven't made up my mind yet about moving out of the city. Can I get counsel from you? You've lived here for a long time. Would you speak into my life? Or I'm really hurting and I'm really struggling. I keep hearing these sermons and I see all the work to do, but I'm just broken. Could you help me? Could you listen to me? Would you pray with me? Would you love on me? This is exactly how God is going to repair and restore his new humanity through us. To know that you're indispensable in his work of being welcomed by him, but also welcoming one another. We are meant to be this beautiful picture of God's new humanity, a foretaste of what he's going to fill the earth with at the end of all time, redeemed and ransomed 
individuals welcomed into his eternal embrace and welcoming people now. The passage ends with, the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied, multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. This is the Acts we know again, growth, new things. But don't forget, it wasn't some amazing spirit-filled teaching, some super hot and too long sermon, but also kind of awesome, some angel leading the escape or any other miracle by Peter that brought about this rapid growth. It was people becoming united to God in their faith and their common identity in and through Jesus Christ, willing to call one another brother, sister, father, mother, to share what they had with one another, to welcome all who came to the God of welcome. Jerusalem was watching, and they were eventually changed. Maybe this is our deepest desire. Maybe this is what we most long for. Maybe it's what we most need is to come home again. And as we come home, we learn what it means to be welcomed. And as we become a home for others, we learn how to continually welcome one another more deeply, not only into God, but into our very own lives for the sake of the gospel. May God make us a church of radical welcome this day and many days to come. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Thank you.